You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm talking today about diabetes. Joining me is Dr. Jessica Lilly, who is the Division Chief of Endocrinology at the Mississippi Center for Advanced Medicine. We trained together at CHOP, so I'm very happy to be welcoming her back to talk about diabetes today, so thanks for joining me. Good morning. So endocrine's not my strong suit, so you're going to have to walk me through all of this. So tell me about how a new onset diabetic might present to a primary care office. So a variety of ways. And so a lot of it's going to depend on on age um, and and family experience. Mm -hmm. And so um, I've seen a a variety over the years. Um, The the really common way um, is the little girl who is having frequency in urination Mm -hmm. and the parents are convinced it's UTI. And so they'll be on their way to vacation and say, let's just swing by the pediatrician's office and make sure that we don't have a UTI and then surprise there's glucose in the urine. Right. Um, sometimes lethargy, um, weight loss, mm-hmm. the polyuria, polydipsia mm-hmm. um, are, are big red flags that, that um, people in the community sometimes will know about. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they'll come in with belly pain um, right. and vomiting, mm-hmm. um, especially vomiting without diarrhea and mm-hmm. so not your typical gastroenteritis. Right. Um, and so um, th- those are things that are, are easily missed. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen children come in for sore throat because of throat. Okay. Um, pre-pupil or little girls who'll um, have um, yeast infections. Mm-hmm. And so all those things, you know, obviously are red flags for right. type 1. Um, and so um, in your younger children, um, things can be a lot harder to pick up because nobody thinks about type 1 diabetes in small children. Right. And, and so, they wear a diaper, so you can't tell sometimes it, about the polyuria exactly. part of it. Right. And so um, I became a pediatric endocrinologist because I have two first cousins with type 1 and grew up with them. And so the the youngest was um, 11 months old when he was diagnosed. And so um, the youngest I've seen without, you know, some unusual genetic presentation like, you know, neonatal diabetes mellitus, um, Mm -hmm. your um, true type 1 autoimmune diabetes, I've seen the youngest was 7 months. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's something to think about if you have a child who's losing weight. Um, and, um, and, and so that, that was the, the big red flag with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he had been back and forth to the doctor with, you know, diagnoses of, you know, viral illness. Mm-hmm. It was in the late fall. So, um, and, you know, of course, every child that age right. is keeping a cold at that time. Right. Um, and my grandmother, um, who has an eighth grade education, mm-hmm. um, said, that baby looks like he has diabetes. Wow. And so we're like, oh, mama, <laughs> babies don't get diabetes, but he, <laughs> she was right. And so, um, and he, he had actually had some of the, um, the weight loss. Um, and then, you know, looking back in pictures, especially, it's really striking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, and, you know, thrushed it in kind of a typical age right. and, um, and came in in DKA with blood sugar of over 1300. Wow. Um, and so he's doing great now. He's a third year medical student back in Mississippi. Great. Um, trying to get him to do pediatrics. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, but that's the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the, it kind of speaks to the, the variety of presentations. Mm-hmm. And so a, a lot of our patients who have children with type 1 mm-hmm. um, really you know, say, gosh, we wish that we'd been screened at our pediatrician's mm-hmm. office. 
Right. It's pretty useless mm -hmm. um, because it can develop over the course of weeks or months. And right. so if you're just going in for an annual well child check, you know, that, you know, you can have a, you yeah. know, falsely reassuring, you know, A1C or right. urine test or, you know, whatever you want to think about. And then um, just knowing to look for those symptoms is the most important thing mm -hmm. we can do to pick it up. Right. So while we might not be doing routine screening for diabetes, right. at least with labs, you know, obviously screening for symptoms. Right. But um, if we do have someone who presents with polyuria, polydipsia, what tests should we in primary care start with? The quickest thing is a urine. And right. it's just really easy and inexpensive. Mm -hmm. You could have a child who, who is kind of, you know, starting on the the brink of type one, mm -hmm. um, who, you know, will, will um, you know, maybe have a clean urine for you. But if you've had glucose over 200, you'll have lupus urea. Mm -hmm. um, ketones are kind of a later finding. Okay. Um, and so, you know, starting there is a good place. Mm -hmm. um, a hemoglobin A1C is, is reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, fasting blood sugar is reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it depends on your degree of suspicion. Right. Um, the majority of people with type one diabetes don't have a first degree relative with it. Okay. And so that's a really common thing that I hear. Right. Uh, people will come in and say, gosh, you know, there's nobody in the family with this. Right. How could so this have happened be. to us? Right. And a lot of people think that you're born with type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. and they weren't born with it. How did they get it now? You right. know, and so, um, you know, trying to, you know, our, our job in endocrinology is to continue to, to push that education as much mm -hmm. as we can. Mm -hmm. For our, our families who do have type 1 diabetes, there is an increased risk. Mm -hmm. And so um, the general population risk for type 1 is about 0.01%, Okay. so low. Mm -hmm. um, but if you have a primary relative, it's about 5%. Oh, wow. And so I'm an optimist. Right. So I say you have a 95% chance of not getting diabetes. <laughs> and so, um, but if you have a sibling um, or a mom with type 1, obviously your suspicion is high. Um, dads, for some reason, actually have a higher risk of passing on um, the risk mm. for type 1 to their children. Okay. Um, and so male family members, um, it's more like a 10% risk. Wow. So it's still 90% risk, right. you know, the uh, <laughs> chance of being okay. Um, but those are, um, are things to kind of look for. And so... Um, and other autoimmune diseases, too, absolutely some increased risk. So celiac, yes. hypothyroidism. Absolutely. Um, um, MS. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we've seen those things where people say, well, there's no history of type 1, but there's a ton of family history of autoimmunity. Right. And people don't think about, you know, say Hashimoto's thyroiditis as, right. as being an autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. they, you know, everybody and their brothers on Synthroid it feels right. like. So. Right. Especially in your clinic. Especially in my clinic. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like, you know, kind of, you know, it's common as a multi vitamins sometimes. Right. So let's say we do send a hemoglobin A1C on somebody. What range are we aiming for in a child who doesn't have diabetes? I understand that it, for children with diabetes, there's a different kind of threshold. Correct. But in an undiagnosed child, where are we aiming for their hemoglobin A1C to be? So a normal A1C in most children is going to be less than about 5.8%. Okay. Um, and so making sure there's no hemoglobinopathy, of course, because mm -hmm. that can falsely lower an A1C. Okay. Um, so if you have a child with sickle cell, for instance, right. um, you know, you're going to have a lower A1C just because of a higher rate of, of um, blood cell turnover. Mm -hmm. um, but looking, um, you know, uh, and, and pre-pubertal -pre -pre children will kind of have this transient insulin resistance. So sometimes they can have kind of a higher five range. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But most of your, ch your children are going to be in the lower fives. Okay. Um, and so... Um, the um, ADA kind of recognized risk factor for prediabetes is 6 to 6.5, mm -hmm. and um, an A1C over 6.5% coupled with other symptoms or signs of type 1 is diagnostic. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. That's good to know um, what, what kind of range we're shooting for. Right. The leading cause of morbidity and mortality in type 1 diabetes is DKA, mm -hmm. and it often occurs at the time of diagnosis. Right. So help us understand who is more likely to present that way in terms of presenting in such a um, serious way. Right. And so, 
children with at, at a young age, obviously, uh-huh. um, children under five, or especially um, high risk for mortality. Right. And a lot of that's because of the, the delayed diagnosis. Right. Um, and you know, the symptoms for diabetes are common. I mm-hmm. mean, we've just come out of the summer in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hot. Everybody's right. drinking Everyone's a lot. Drinking. Everybody's urinating a lot. And we're Everybody's tired. To hydrate. And exactly. It's, so sometimes it's hard to know. Like, are they peeing more because we told them to drink more water because it's hot out? They're finally listening. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> so. Uh, but that's something that, that people tend to kind of minimize. So symptoms, everybody's busy. Mm-hmm. Um, kids can kind of hide symptoms. So, you know, um, you know, nocturia, getting up at night to run to the bathroom, right. wetting the bed, you know, things mm-hmm. that can happen that, you know, kids can be ashamed of and not mm-hmm. really tell anybody. Like, I'm having to urinate so much, I've had an accident. Right, right. Um, you know, obviously that's a red flag. If you have a teenager who's wet the bed all of a sudden, you know, right. that's something you, you, that you might think that, you know, we need to see our pediatrician for. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and, and golly, my poor kids. I mean, you know, we, we've got family history of top one now and I mm-hmm. see it every day and if they ever have a, you know, a normal you know childhood you know bedwetting situation you know mm-hmm. I'm you know getting my glucometer out <laughs> checking them in their sleep um but that is something that um that we you know can kind of look you know those symptoms can be kind of hard to, to pick up on right especially in smaller children mm-hmm. so our young children are at, um, at high risk mm-hmm. of um of coming in DKA mm-hmm. um children with poor access to health care mm-hmm. of course I'm in Mississippi that's kind of the epicenter yeah. of poor access and so um we, we see like presentations because children often don't even get well child checks right. or have a relationship with a pediatrician. They can right. call, um, you know, to say, hey, I'm a little bit worried, you know, that, that you know, little Susie's right. been really tired. And so on monitoring um, their growth. Exactly. for weight loss. Exactly. You know, especially as kids go through rapid growth spurts, that right. can be a kind of high frequency um, time of presentation for type one, mm-hmm. but kids, you know, those parents will, will think, well, golly, they're just, you know, slimming up, right. you know, they had a growth spurt and, and, and mm-hmm. they can kind of miss it or, or they'll maybe be making efforts to eat more healthfully right. and they'll say, oh, they, you know, this is working. Our diet plan is going in a good direction. Right. Um, and so our, our, our kids who have poor access to, to healthcare, um, the parents who have education gap, there are definitely socioeconomic, um, uh, variations and mm-hmm. so our, our uh, patients who live in poverty are more likely to have a late presentation and more mm-hmm. likely to present in DKA. Okay. Um, now I've definitely seen exceptions to that. Mm-hmm. I've had physicians, children come in in severe DKA. Mm-hmm. I've had people who um, have type 1 diabetes themselves miss it in their children mm-hmm. because their you know the denial is very strong. Right. Now I'm shifting gears a little bit to people who have a diagnosis already of diabetes but we know that insulin requirements can be either increased or decreased when children are sick. And I know that um, at JOP, when we were training, we talked a lot about sick day rules. So help me uh, refresh on what yes. those are. So what does that mean and how should I treat my diabetic patients differently when they do present with an illness? Right. And so in, in, in times of sickness or stress, mm-hmm. um, insulin requirements do go up. And so you can see a lot of different, you know, kind of presentations with illness. Mm-hmm. I have some of my kids, especially my teenagers, who tend to kind of ride their basal insulin. Mm-hmm. And so their basal insulin levels will be kind of high. They'll miss mm-hmm. bolus shots. Mm-hmm. And so we, we don't have any hypoglycemia when they're eating their normal diet and mm-hmm. grazing and doing the things that they normally do. Right. But when they're ill and not eating, we'll see those blood sugars drop mm-hmm. because we kind of have a, a falsely high basal insulin and, you know, that we're just trying to, you know, do our best with our blood sugars and as we're making those adjustments. Right. And so those are things to kind of look look out for. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of parents, even despite really good education, will get really nervous about low blood sugars and so they'll omit their basal insulin. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, oh gosh, we don't we don't need that lantus. We you know we don't need that tracebo. They're um, they're going to go low because they're not eating anything. Mm-hmm. So we know the opposite is true that often they'll need even more insulin in the time of illness. Mm-hmm. And so you know that's a, a way to take a strep throat to DKA very quickly mm-hmm. or um, a true gastroenteritis to you know to full blown DKA. Right. Um, especially as you um, counter in factors like dehydration. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so um, knowing that, that we're going to have to do more frequent corrections, that we're going to have to be very aggressive about hydration, mm -hmm. and then watching out for starvation ketosis. Mm -hmm. And so in, in children who are not eating because they're sick, mm -hmm. if they're not getting any sugar in, mm -hmm. um, we have to make sure that we're um, not making ketones um, just because we're not eating anything. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, just reviewing, you know, touch base with your endocrinologist, mm -hmm. you know, while you're ill, um, knowing that if they come in and they're not eating, that we need to make sure that they know not to stop their basal. Right. Um, insulin pump users are at particularly high risk. Um, mm -hmm. I, I feel like um, a lot of times they um, forget that pump malfunction is a cause of vomiting, mm -hmm. um, especially if you're stressed and you're in the middle of the night with a sick right. child. Um, I've, I've had a lot of my pump users who will call and say, oh, Dr. Lily, they're having a, a stomach virus, and, you know, could you call us in some, some Zofran or some Finnergan? Um, and I'll, I'll you know, talk to them a little bit more, and it turns out that we maybe had a pump site change about 10, you know, 10 12 hours before then, mm. and then maybe you know, injecting the scar tissue or you know, had right. a cramp in the catheter, or, right. um, and, and then they, uh, they kind of put together, oh, wait, we've had the blood sugar started going up higher after mm. that, and, and that's when the vomiting began. And so I counsel my insulin pump users that um, vomiting is a pump site malfunction until proven otherwise. Okay. And so we change the pump site, we give a correction with the shot so we know insulin is in, mm -hmm. um, um, and then um, start to, you know, gradually rehydrate. Mm -hmm. um, the kind of, you know, rule of thumb for hydration is about an ounce per year of age per hour. Okay. And so, and then just sipping it over time. Right. And so if they, you know, if you have, you know, high ketones and your um, stomach's going to be queasy. Mm -hmm. And so if a child drinks just a big yeah. jug of water, just they're going right to come back. right back up, you know. Right. And so if I, if I say just, you know, fill it up and set it out mm -hmm. and then just sip at it over an hour, okay. I, I can be really successful in keeping kids out of the hospital that mm -hmm. way. Great. Those are good things for us to think about, especially like you said, the pump malfunction. Because I think sometimes in primary care, when we see a kid on a pump, it's almost like the work is done for us. We don't have to think about it, but we don't think about the malfunction of the technology that we're using. Right, right. So that's, that's a good point. So what routine screening should we do in primary care for our patients with a diagnosis of diabetes and sort of how often? So should we be looking for those other autoimmune conditions we were talking about, like celiac screening? Um, do we need to worry about um, doing additional um, vision or lipid screenings compared to our um, non-diabetic patients? Most of our pediatric endocrinologists are going to um, to take care of all that screening. That's I, I think it depends on the um, the relationship they have. Mm -hmm. um, I know um, in underserved areas especially or in, in places where parents have trouble getting off work to get into specialist appointments, especially mm -hmm. if it's a long drive, mm -hmm. um, then you know they may miss some of those appointments, unfortunately. And, mm -hmm. and so if you have one of those patients and you're saying, like, I want to make sure that you're getting screened according to guidelines, mm -hmm. um, or if, if the specialist office is asking you to help with labs before the visit, right. um, then we typically um, about... Uh, at diagnosis, we'll screen for thyroid disease mm -hmm. and we'll screen for celiac just because right. of the higher incidence of both of those two. Right. Um, and so thyroid disease, we, um, we, we screen with the TSH annually. Mm -hmm. um, and then for celiac, um, once every two to five years, just depending mm -hmm. on symptoms. Right. But it's good to keep in mind is you have a, if you have a child with type 1 who comes in with belly pain but no mm -hmm. ketones, mm -hmm. you might think, hmm, could right. this be celiac? And right. so that, that would be a, a good opportunity to maybe screen or at mm -hmm. least check and make sure that screening has been done. Right. Um, and so um, with uh, other things to think about, autoimmune hepatitis is more common mm -hmm. um, you know, than the general population, Addison's. Mm -hmm. And so, um, if you, again, mm -hmm. you have a child who comes in with, 
weight loss and lethargy and right. more morning low blood sugars or hyperpigmentation. Those are things mm-hmm. that might pop up in your office first. Right. And so just to keep those autoimmune diseases at the back of your mind. Sure. Um, I've diagnosed Graves more than once in type 1. Mm. And so that's something that has a little bit more precipitous onset than Hashimoto's mm-hmm. with the hypothyroidism. Right. And so um, we'll have people come in with the symptoms of hyperthyroidism um, mm-hmm. and, you know, the weight loss, anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a kid who, you know, comes in and says, you know, gosh, I'm worried about symptoms of palpitations and right. they're going to come to you first. Right. You might say, I'm going to do a really good thyroid exam right. and th- consider checking a TSH. Mm-hmm. That's so. a great point because they don't, they, the patient's probably not thinking that their palpitations are anything related to their diabetes. Right. So or insomnia they may not tell or whatever. They may tell their primary care doctor first. Right. We hope so. And yeah. that's the thing that I really try to reinforce, um, especially um, where we are, um, uh, people see us every three months mm-hmm. at minimum. And so right. if, you know, they might see their pediatrician once a year, right. um, especially in our rural areas, they'll, they'll lean really heavily on urgent care, mm-hmm. um, just for sick visits and things like that, which I have lots right. of feelings about, but, right. um, that, that, that aside, um, that, that, that physician patient relationship is not as right. strong in places where in towns where there's not a pediatrician. Right. And so, um, you know, the pediatrician may be an hour away. We mm-hmm. may be two hours away. Mm-hmm. And so, um, they'll, they'll see us a lot and, and it's really easy to get a hold of our office. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people call me because they're having symptoms of an ear infection. Mm-hmm. And I, I just try to reinforce all of that I can. It's mm-hmm. the best thing that, that a person you know, who's living with a chronic disease can do is to establish with a good pri- primary care physician mm-hmm. and to have that strong relationship. So, you know, I, I can do the diabetes well right. and then um, they can do primary care well. Right. This, and we, we've talked as we walked around the clinic this morning. It's been a long time since I did primary care right. pediatrics. <laughs> right. It has been a long time. And yeah. so that they don't want me managing, right. um, you know, the, um, those acute issues as they come right. up. Just like they don't want us managing your diabetes. <laughs> so. This is so much overlap though. We're very so. happy to have you do that part. So um, since you are much more up to date with uh, diabetes than we are, what's kind of new and exciting in diabetes management that we should know about? I know sometimes patients come in and they show us things and we're like, I didn't even know that existed. That's really cool. So what, what's out there now? It's really fun. Um, just even seeing what's happened as long as I've been paying attention to type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, so when my oldest cousin was diagnosed, he was started on um, NNR. And so I'm mm-hmm. um, a toddler on NNR. I'm just trying to imagine what that would be like and say, yeah. you must eat this many grams of carbs at this exact time. Right. Especially since I've become a mother and have have little ones of my own, I've called my aunt and just say I, I just you know yeah. I respect you so much. <laughs> Um, to, to think about what that must have been like. Mm-hmm. And so um, Lantus actually was invented the year I graduated from high school. Yeah. And so 24-hour, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, basal insulin. And so to see what's happening now, I mean, it's, it's not been that long. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it makes me just really happy, um, right. you know, to, to see the available technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so right now, um, continuous glucose monitoring is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there are a couple of different options that we use in children. Um, the Dexcom CGM um, is, is something that I'm, I'm a, a little... Um, small device. It's you know, smaller than a coin. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty flush to the skin. That patients can put it um, on the skin, on the arm or the abdomen, mm-hmm. um, you know, or anywhere they can give an insulin shot. And yeah. I, I think that there there may be some official places that Dexcom has said you know right. where, where they tested it and where they can use it. But right. but anyway, it's just a nice little you know wearable device that mm-hmm. they uh, that checks the blood sugar every couple minutes, and they'll give the, the parents the ability to follow remotely on their cell phone. Great. And so if the blood sugar is dropping, they'll even you know, give a rate of drop or a rate of rise. It alarms wow. in the night. Wow. And I know especially given the fear of hypoglycemia at night, right. um, we really, um, you know, are, are happy to have that technology to know, that, you know, that, um, that, you know that that's happening. Um, they are working on integrated pump systems. Um, so they um, have 
Um, right now, the Medtronic 670G uses their own um, sensor that feeds back to the pump and then adjusts basal insulin in um, response to trends. And that is really wonderful, that's and that, that's been out, you know, just um, about a year. Um, and so I'm getting a few more patients on, and it's, it's fun to see that um, the, the, um, they have two days of using, like, a regular insulin pump, mm-hmm. and then five days where they can really be hands-off wow. um, and let the pump do its thing for the most part. Um, that's great. And so that's exciting. And then the other pump companies are, of course, you know, working to catch up with that tandem and have something mm-hmm. similar right now called Basal IQ. Um, I have patients that use every system. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like they're all pretty equivalent. There are pluses and minuses to every pump and every right. sensor. And it's just one they going to use and mm-hmm. enjoy. And so I really want to make sure my patients have, mm-hmm. you know, wide access to that information. And it sounds like um, it's giving them a lot more freedom, too. Yes, yes. So a lot, of more, a lot more freedom in their lifestyle. Um, and a lot more discretion right. in some ways, too. It's a lot more normative to pull mm-hmm. out, like, a, um, one of our pumps is um, tubeless, and right. so they can actually bolus from their um, glucometer, uh-huh. and so it's a little remote control for the pump, and so they can yeah. um, check their blood sugar, and it's almost like they're texting, right. and in um, the coming months, they'll actually have a system that they can dose from their cell phone, wow. and so uh, and instead of having to pull out, you know, shots or pins at right. the cafeteria, they can, you know, just text, you know, what, yeah. what's happening, especially with um, the CD. GMs that don't require um, a finger prick. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Dexcom you can wear for 10 days and just dose off of what the screen shows wow. because of the, how accurate they are. And so I've had pretty good insurance coverage um, and it's still pretty considerable out of pocket um, for our, our private payers, but a lot of my families are doing as much as they can to make sure their children have access to that. I've had, you know, teachers who have side hustles, mm-hmm. you know, selling, you know, um, through different companies trying mm-hmm. to make sure that they can, you know, provide this opportunity to their children as they find that the technology is so mm-hmm. life-changing. Um, we have some longer-acting basal insulins that are really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have, you know, some of my kids who are really forgetful. Mm-hmm. Um, and just a little side note, managing ADHD well mm-hmm. in type 1 is really, really important. Yeah. And so we're very thankful for our pediatrician mm-hmm. colleagues who do that for right. us. Yeah, um, because, you know, forgetting the bolus or forgetting to check. is it are those teen patients. Oh, gosh. It's, yeah. it's, it's so dangerous. And so mm-hmm. we're, we're um, um, to have that variability, especially I have some college kids that, you know, have some variability in their schedule. And so... Um, being able to put them on a basal that has a, a longer steady state. Mm-hmm. I, I can think of a couple of patients in particular I know it saved us some hospitalizations mm-hmm. to know that we've had you know, a little bit longer coverage for them to say, oh, no, I've forgotten it. Now I can you know, come back and give it. And that's, mm-hmm. th- th- those have been some, some nice developments to give. So. Great. Well, and um, as we wrap up, any favorite resources that you have that pediatricians can go to to get some more information on diabetes and management and resources for our patients. Absolutely. And so your friendly pediatric endocrinologist locally, um, right. you know, um, I have several pediatrician friends that I'm in you know, close text contact with mm-hmm. and they'll shoot questions over and I'm happy you know, to do that. Anything mm-hmm. we can do to keep kids out of the hospital mm-hmm. and, and to make them feel supportive because man, diabetes is so 24 seven right. and burnout is so real. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, with the, the patients and with their families. Mm-hmm. And, and so you know, the, the more layers of support we have, the better. Right. Um, there was a really neat uh, PEDS and review article um, that was written by some colleagues of mine back at Vanderbilt mm-hmm. in 2013. Okay. And so Justin Gregory was the lead author and then Jill Simmons and Dan Moore and two of the three have type one. Okay. And so um, it's a really well-written um, you know, scholarly article. Okay. Um, Jamie Wright wrote a, a really good book that you can actually get at Barnes and Noble um, or Amazon and Ann Peters was the co-author there. Okay. Um, and it was, um, I think, the complete guide to diabetes um, self-management or uh, it's, it's a really um, a neat book. And then my very favorite is the Pink Panther book. 
Okay. And so it's called Understanding Diabetes. It's mm-hmm. from Barbara Davis um, in Colorado. Um, and so Peter Chase and David Moss were the co-authors of that one. And okay. it's what we give to, to families. Mm-hmm. And I used it a lot during fellowship. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's very understandable. Um, I think having a couple of copies around, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, you can actually order them to provide to families um, through your practice um, is helpful. Right. Um, because it's, it's very, you know, this is what diabetes is. And this, th- these are sick day rules. And right. here's my insulin plan. And mm-hmm. what do I do with sports? And right. all those things that come up is we, we really tell you know, families, we want their children to have a normal life. Right. I mean, that's the that's the goal. The, the first thing that we say when we walk in the room, we come in with so much optimism mm-hmm. and say, we want you to live a normal life. We want you to live a life free of complications. Mm-hmm. I want you to be able to, you know, um, to continue doing what you were wanting to do. Mm-hmm. I remind them that we have people with type 1 diabetes on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have people with type 1 diabetes on Olympic teams. Right. We have countless rock stars mm-hmm. and, you know, professional football players and, I mean, really, you name it. But then, you know, beyond, you know, that, you know, coming in and telling them, like, yes, we want you to have a normal life, but it, it doesn't happen by itself. Right. And so you know, they need to have, you know, that strong education. And mm-hmm. the more that we can have, you know, coming in from um, from primary care, the better. Um, and so the, the other thing that I would caution um, as we wrap up is mm-hmm. to not um, not miss um, type 1 diabetes in children who are, who are obese. Mm. And I think that is a, a tempting um, thing to do as, as children come in and we're worried about diabetes mm-hmm. and they have obesity. Everybody has a family history of type 2. Right. And I feel like where I live especially we right. do. Um, and, and the thought is, oh gosh, you know, like oh, you're overweight, of course, you know, this is right. type two. Right. Um, and so um, a third of our children um, with, um, in, in period, um, have obesity. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, looking at our cross-section of type one, mm-hmm. you know, a, about a third of our children diagnosed with type one may also have obesity. Right. Well, thanks for all of these pearls. We appreciate what you do, certainly, in Mississippi um, with your patient population, I know you're very dedicated and they're lucky to have you. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> and thank you so much for coming to Philly so that we could all learn from you. And we will post links to the things that you mentioned as resources on our website, which is www.chop.edu slash PCP podcast. So we'll put all those resources there for people and link to um, your practice so people can look you up if they're in the Mississippi area. That's wonderful. They want to come practice pediatric endocrinology with me. That would be fantastic. <laughs> I could use some help. Um, but it's been, it's been a lot of fun. We've got, got a great group of patients, and it's a great place to be. And um, it's great to be home. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.